On this episode of our Psychiatric Nurse Practitioner podcast, we have a special guest, Mr. Samuel Wally, an Army veteran who will share his experiences in the deployed environment as he sustained multiple injuries and traumatic brain injury from an improvised explosive device that detonated. He talks about his military family, the pain, the suffering, the losses and anger that was built up, as well as how he built his life again. This is Ana Sanchez, your host. Hello, this is Ana Sanchez, your host with the Psychiatric Nurse Practitioner Podcast. Today, we are very honored that we have a guest um, that will be sharing his experiences as an infantryman in the Army. His name is Mr. Samuel Wally, and I am uh, thrilled to have you as our guest here in our virtual podcast. Welcome. Oh, thank you for having me. So, thank, tell me, tell me your story. Tell, talk about, talk about <laughs> yourself. I know it's hard to do that, but so that we can learn about your experiences. Well, I'll, I'll try to tell the basic story because uh, in my life I've had a lot of stories, but the the one that everybody knows about is um, you know joined the military in 2010, right after the right after high school. You know, graduated when I was 17 and went straight into the went straight to basic training. Did all my training at Fort Benning. You know, went around the corner for airborne school. Finished with that. Got to Fort Bragg around Halloween of 2010. And then ended up uh, deploying in 2012, February of 2012, to southern Afghanistan. And then later on in the deployment, June 6, 2012, at about 10 a.m. in the morning, uh, while moving north of a small checkpoint that we were stationed at, uh, we ended up coming across a very uh, sketchy compound for Afghanistan. And um, in a... In a series of events, I ended up going after somebody on a motorcycle, and Taliban ended up detonating a IED off to the right of me, and it immediately took off my right leg. The left leg was uh, the tibia went through um, mm. one end, and then the other end had the other side of the tibia, and my foot was off to the left side of me, pointing toward my butt, and my left arm <clears throat> was chopped off by a piece of shrapnel, and it was wow. still dangling and obviously uh, all arterial bleeding uh, going everywhere. I, I tried to stand up. You know, I got blasted about 25 feet up in the air. Ooh. I landed. I tried to get up. You know, I didn't understand that my limbs were missing and none of this made sense. I actually thought it was an RPG blast at first. And uh, so I tried standing up and I didn't realize I was actually digging my bones into the bone. Oh, and my so goodness. Wow. That, that's when I started to scream for help and um, not realizing that my teammate that was right behind me uh, actually got blasted back up against the building and was almost knocked out. He, they both him and my squad leader were blasted back. And um, then shortly after I started screaming for help, um, uh, James twist ended up mm. going into the, he ended up going into the smoke and pulled me out of the hole mm. and brought me over to the building and I couldn't breathe at all. Um, so uh, one of the first things they did was pour pretty much waterboarded me. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, uh, 
Yeah, and they, they poured a whole uh, bottle of water over my face so that way I could spit up all the dirt. Mm-hmm. And then um, right after that, uh, Twist kind of, you know, the, I, I could tell by him looking over me something really bad was wrong, and I didn't completely know yet. He started applying a tourniquet on my on my right leg, which mm-hmm. had been amputated above the knee. And um, the squad leader, Daniel Williams, ended up um, tying off my left arm. And he was also calling the nine line. And about this mm-hmm. time, you know, and mind you, all this only lasts about 10 minutes. But mm-hmm. there's a, there were stages in it where, you know, in the beginning it was the uh, – I, I kept saying to him, why me for about a minute? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I said it back to back. I just kept saying, why, like, why, 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 why me? And I kept saying that for about a minute. And I stopped talking and I looked up at the sky and I just kind of did my, my last prayers. Mm. And then I kind of said, well, you know, I started thinking about uh, how Elevis had been hit one week prior to and how he, he wasn't able to survive um, almost the same IED blast because I started looking around. I noticed my left arm was dangling and then i look off to the left and i noticed my you know tibia is going through each end of the leg and it was dangling off to the side so i thought that one was gone and then the one i I panicked on again was Mm. i look over at my right leg and my muscle had retracted back up Mm. into my thigh Mm -hmm. to where it made it um so swollen that even the the multi-cam pants were actually uh they were they were extremely tight uh, because of this, and um, so that I started to panic a little bit. And then, and then after I said my prayer, I just kind of went calm. And then after that, I said, "Okay, well, I'm going to die." So I started telling jokes. I was actually a little disappointed the book didn't include that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I one of the first jokes I said was, uh, "I said, how high did I go?" And then I and and, and then I then I ended up. Um, I made uh, Sergeant Williams hold my hand, and I said, I need you to do me one last favor. And he just said, yeah, what, anything. And I said, I need you to, you know, airborne paratroopers, when you jump out of planes, you got a log, uh, you got a jump log, you know, what type of plane it was, what type of shoot, what type of jump. uh, And so I asked him to make sure that that was put on my jump log. And uh, (laughs) he just kind of looked at me very strangely when I said that. And then uh, about that time, you know, my team leader had ran back over there from mine sweeping. He was going to mine sweep uh, another team across the road. Mm. And he ended up, you know, Olympic hurdling these great bros, got back to me, and uh, he started applying a tourniquet on my left leg. And I remember looking at him when he got back over there, and uh, and I remember dangling my arm in front of him, and I said – I said, uh, you know, hey, how about you do something? Because my my glove had been blown off that hand. And I Mm. said, hey, how about you do something and go find uh, my glove, proper PPE, Roger. (laughs) (laughs) So he kind of he kind of smiled at that. Then shortly after my leg twitched and then the tibia, my bone actually stabbed him. Ooh, uh, wow. so he, 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 uh, he didn't get a purple heart for that though. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, then shortly after that, they put two tourniquets on every limb mm. and, um, which was really w- one of the, uh, I think critical moves in yes. saving me. Yes. And, uh, cause you know, before, you know, they were putting one tourniquet on each limb 
And we think that kind of affected the golden hour of getting the guys to the hospital. So, you know, people after Olivas, people start carrying more tourniquets because we realized, you know, this is a very real thing. There is a lot of IEDs in the area. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, uh, unfortunately, he did, you know, he did pass on that IED mm-hmm. blast. But I, I think we learned from the mistakes uh, from him passing and, you know, and then it saved my life in a way. Uh, so they, you know, load me up on this stretcher. I heard them calling in the medevac and I, I didn't think the medevac was going to come in because I remember Will telling the medevac that there were Taliban in the area, mm. uh, because we had just been ambushed and I knew medevacs did not land if, mm. if they knew Taliban were there. Mm. Uh, they usually would just circle around until they knew the threat was gone. So that, that scared me and I knew there was no LZ in the area. Um, we had a lot of great bros a lot of vegetation so there wasn't really anywhere to land mm, um mm. and sure enough i i don't know how this pilot did what he did still to this day but he found an area that were the rotors were practically clipping the trees around them well they were clipping some trees wow uh, and he landed in the area did not care you know the taliban were there he i, oh, wow. I have no no clue you know what his name is but Aww. that pilot I, I tried searching for him uh, quite a few times, but that that pilot, you know, once again, is was one of the critical critical people mm-hmm. in saving my life. And uh, so they they got me out because it, it, well, if he didn't land, they would have probably had to haul me by um, haul me off probably 500 meters um, to get me to another LZ where it'd be open field. And I, I didn't see that going over too well, considering we'd just been ambushed. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would you know be a big time Taliban could go go after them but they uh, got me on the medevac got me out of there and got me to the hospital I was still awake the whole time wow um, amazing yeah and I, well and everybody always said you know don't worry when you get hit by an IED because you'll go into shock and you won't feel anything and you know and you won't have to remember any of it mm-hmm. and I remember I remember people always saying that and then you know when I heard of Olivas getting hit I heard he didn't pass out and then when I got hit, I I didn't pass out, and um, so I re- that's how I remember everything very vividly. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they got me into Kandahar, the Kandahar Airfield Hospital, and um, and started immediately um, operating on me. Uh, I, I still had my uniform on. One of the first things they did, you know, while getting me back there was cut off all my clothes, and um, so I was butt naked in front of about 14 surgeons and they uh, they immediately started to operate and one of the first things they did that i i wouldn't i wouldn't talk to my parents about i wouldn't really talk to anybody about for a few years mm-hmm. um was that i remember them cutting off the rest of my arm and you know throwing it in this biohazard bag that was right beside my surgical table and um and you, i you were aware of this yeah i was very aware of this wow. And I, I always say the comparison, it, it always, you know, with this operating light above me and all these doctors where I only saw their eyes and no face, it just, right. it, it, it reminded me of almost some, uh, like World War II science experiment. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I, it, it was, it was just a very eerie, scary feeling. And, um, so that's when my body started going into shock, uh, because I was terrified of watching that and started to go into shock. And I remember the last thing I did was I grabbed the doctor and I pulled him down 
you know, maybe a few inches from my face. Mm. And I was trying to tell him I can't breathe because I didn't know when you go into shock, you, uh, you know, you can't breathe. Mm. And so I kept, I kept trying to tell him that and I couldn't talk. And then, um, you know, I went into shock while holding him. Wow. And, and then I, uh, woke up in Northern Afghanistan at Bagram Airfield in the hospital there. And, um, this was the following day. And then about this time, uh, you know, I'm trying to figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. The, the nurse comes in there and, uh, you know, and I don't know if I'm supposed to say this on a podcast, but mm-hmm. one of the first things I was worried about was, you know, downstairs yes, was, yes, every, was yeah. everything there. Yes. And I think almost everybody that gets blown up, probably that's actually, I saw this, you know, with an Afghan prior to me getting blown up, uh, for some reason when people get hit, they, uh, that's one of the first things they ask about. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I did the same thing, you know, every, everything was fine. The nurse told me, and then, um, you know, I just kind of laid there, took everything in and was just trying to understand what just happened. Trying to and, process it. Yeah, yeah. Which I, which I had to do for years to come. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't even get time to try to, you know, figure out what's going on because it, it was shortly after that, that I saw stretcher after stretcher after stretcher of about nine guys, uh, roll in this, this empty hospital room that I was in. That was actually a, you know, a larger bay room, um, filled up. It would, it went from just me to completely filled up. Wow. And I remember, you know, there was only one guy out of all of them that that I remember being awake and I kept hearing him yell at the nurse, you know, get off me, get off me a lot more cuss words. Mm-hmm. Uh, but <laughs> he kept saying, get off me, get off me. Um, go help out somebody else. I'm fine. Aww. And I remember I, I recognized the voice and, um, I look over and funny thing is I, you know, I say I recognize the voice cause his name was a uh, Sergeant voice. He was actually one of the medics from one of our other troops. Oh my and goodness. I, okay. So I, I found out that, um, Bravo troop, cause I was with Charlie troop four, seven, three, uh, fourth brigade, 82nd, uh, 82nd airborne division. And I, I noticed that this guy from, I, I noticed it was one of the guys from Bravo. And I remember looking over at him and he made eye contact with me. And I remember he just said, Hey, Hey, what's up, Wally? What are you doing? <laughs> and he, he got, he got happy out of nowhere. And I'm just Aww. thinking that it was just, it was so surreal because, uh, you know, there's just all this bad going on and, you know, and he got happy to see me there for a second. And then mm-hmm. I just asked him, you know, what happened? Like, what happened to y'all? And I come to find out that Bravo troop, um, had a mass cow. They oh, ended up, I, mm. they ended up actually hitting two IEDs back to back. Um, and it ended up injuring, I, I believe it injured nine and killed one. Um, so these, these guys were the ones that survived that IED blast. Um, but then from there it was to Germany, long stool and, you know, and long stool, it was, uh, four days of surgeries. Mm. Uh, my, mm. my, my temperature was going from, uh, about 95 to 104 within the course of one hour. Mm. Um, so my, my body was trying to shut down. Uh, I was on, obviously on a lot of ketamine, mm-hmm. um, didn't really know completely what was going on um, because of that. And I came out of one of the surgeries, the main one I remember, I came out of it and I woke up a little 
bit um, early. You know, I wasn't even back to my hospital room, and I woke up right after the surgery when they had put me on the table to well to bring me back to the hospital room. And I just I remember I had a that was the only time in my life that I've had a you know a it felt like the it, it all felt real. It it felt like I just got blown up. Everything replayed in my head, and mm. it, it felt like it just happened. And I remember I thought it was all a nightmare. And so when I woke up, I started screaming at the doctors around me to let me get back out there with my guys. Wow. Mm -hmm. And and I, uh, I tried to get out of the, I tried to get out of the stretcher and uh, they didn't like that too much. So I felt, (laughs) uh, I felt the needle hit my arm Uh pretty quick and, Mm -hmm. and I was, I was, I was out, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I would wake up, wake up later on to, I believe the ISAF Sergeant Major um, came to visit me around that time. And it was, that was also one of the first times I got to call my parents. And mm-hmm. also, because uh, my parents, they were not told I survived the IED blast. They were just called um, by uh, you know, somebody from the 82nd. And they just said, you know, hey, your your son's been blown up. Uh, he, we do know he's a triple amputee right now. Um, we are not sure if he's going to be able to make it. Wow. And that's all that's all they knew. Wow. Um, so when I called from Germany, you know, was able to tell them I'm alive and I'm going to make it. And, you know, just kind of explaining some of the things I was going through at that time. Mm-hmm. And, and mind you, they didn't really know anything that was going on. They didn't understand how bad it was getting because every time I would go back to um, one of our, our main cops overseas, I would call everybody else's. Uh, parents around that time and I wouldn't call mine because I I couldn't lie to my parents Mm. and uh, I could lie to other people's parents I can't lie to my parents Mm. and and Mm. I can I couldn't tell them everything's all right when it's not and um, so after that then I called my platoon who they also didn't know if I was alive or not because you know uh, like second platoon with Olivas when they loaded them up onto the chopper thought everything was fine then you find out you know the next day everything wasn't fine and they died so mm-hmm. i'm sure this was resting in the back of their heads uh with a lot of my platoon and um so i was able to call them and uh, tell them i was okay and i was going to make it mm-hmm. and, you know and ho- hopefully that helped them out on the ground to you know keep pushing on keep doing their job uh to not have to worry about me and uh then you know after that four days in germany then to you know the the almighty Walter Reed <laughs> where, where I would, uh, yeah, where I would, I was, uh, not too happy about anything. I was, mm-hmm. I was always angry when I, you know, when I got off the, 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 out of the ambulance into the ICU of Walter Reed, uh, let's just say I cussed out quite a few people along the way. And, you know, I was, I was just angry about everything because I, I just wanted to be out there with my guys. I had a job to do and I wasn't done doing it. Mm-hmm. And so the, I think that's why everybody, everybody, uh, all my nurses always said I was very angry in the hospital. And I think that, you know, that goes back to, you know, getting, feeling like I got taken out of the fight and then the anger got worse because, um, sure. If you've, if you've read the book, uh, as you know, as the story goes, uh, you know, uh, a lot more people got injured after me. Yeah. And so that, that kind of, um, messed with my mentality that I felt like I was supposed to be out there, you know, to help, help some of them out, help save some of them. And it was just a helpless feeling. It felt worse than uh, I've never been to prison, but I, I felt like it was worse oh, than prison. Wow. You're, yeah. You're, that's a good analogy there. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, you just you're stuck in the you're stuck in the hospital bed. Can't really do anything. You can't go help your guys. You're just mm-hmm. helpless. And mm-hmm. then you just got to hear about it. And it was, you know, uh, it was hit after hit. Well, you know, the first one was a week after I was sitting there in the hospital. My lieutenant came walking into my room, and he was covered in um, you know shrapnel wounds. Wow. And and uh, he told me what had happened. They had an IED and a grape row. And uh, so you know, at first it was him and Kerner. Then uh, you, you start you start hearing about um, every every the you know how bad it is on the ground. I mm-hmm. thought it was bad with me. Then you know my lieutenant's telling me it's getting worse. Uh, you know, then shortly after that, about two weeks later, we end up. Um, I had a nurse came into my room. You know, well, actually, I should back up. This started with the FRG told me that somebody from my platoon had died. They told me he was shot and killed. Mm. Um, and then I ended up finding out the name. Uh, the name was Matthew Haynes, somebody I was very close with in the platoon. And so I started screaming uh, in my hospital bed, and I kept screaming his name. And I started hitting my Dilaudid button, and oh, which wow. I had timed out. Mm-hmm. And I, I knew it, you know, if you hit it back to back, it doesn't work. But I just kept <laughs> hitting it. I, I kept hitting it when the time came until I passed out. Mm. And uh, then I, I remember waking up later on nurse came in there said asked me what the name was i was screaming said the name and he said uh you know hey he's alive he's he's actually on the flight flight manifest (laughs) you know i saw earlier he's on the flight manifest and he's going to be here tomorrow and i had not been out of my hospital bed so i told him you know okay well i'm getting out of the hospital bed i i gotta go down there and see him (laughs) and so you know my lieutenant parents uh both you know, help me and the nurses help me, you know, get all, get all the IVs so I could, you know, <laughs> be willed down there to see him. And wow. we went down there to see him. And, uh, yeah. And that was, that, that was a rough sight. He had been hit in the neck and it spun around, hit his spine. He was paralyzed. Uh, and at that time he was actually completely paralyzed. All he could move was his eyes. Um, later on he would end up, you know, regaining control of some of his upper body. But, uh, all, all I could see, you know, I, the first thing I said to him is cause we had a bet overseas that if he died, I had to name my, uh, name my first son after him. Mm. And so one of the first things I said, you know, I was making fun of him and I told him that I'm not going to have to name my kid after him. <laughs> and, uh, I held his hand and I just remember a tear mm. rolling down his eyes, even though he couldn't move. Right. Um, so yeah, that was, uh. Now, and that was just, you know, that was the start of it. That was uh, the, the start of it, yes. Yeah, now I'll stop talking because I, I know uh, there's a lot of questions. How, how, <laughs> and, long, uh, how long were you at Walter Reed? I was at Walter Reed for approximately, um, it was two and a half, almost three years. Wow. It was from, yeah, that was from June when I got blown up all the way to when I got out of the military, which was the end of 2014. Wow. Wow. Okay. That's a long time. A a little, uh, that was the majority. I mean, I I spent, you know, about two and a half years at at Bragg and overseas and about two and a half years at Walter Reed. So that was half of my career right there. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Wow. That is an incredible story of bravery, heroism, the family, the military family, the platoon that you have. Oh my goodness, that is, 
ooh, the, the emotions that you've gone through. I mean, you just talked about your denial, your the stages of grieving, of how you kind of lost yourself and the anger that manifested because of what you've gone through and what your mm-hmm. platoon has gone through. And that you've, yeah, you're kind of bargaining with a higher being there too, right? And it okay. seems to me that you are in the acceptance phase now where you are, that you're, you're, you're continued healing mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, yeah no, acceptance is definitely a big one. Um, I, I used to, the main question I would keep playing in my head over and over, and I asked myself this, you know, almost weekly was, uh, could you sit down and, you know, and eat and talk with, you know, the Taliban. Mm. And I would ask, ask myself that all the time. And at first it was always, you know, no, I would, I would want to kill them. And I, I just, you know, I hate them. I want them all to die. And it, that continued on through Walter Reed. And it mm. wasn't until later on after I got out of the military, I kept asking myself that question. And, you know, finally one day I just said, yeah, I, I don't, I don't blame them anymore. I, mm. I, you know, I had to, keep you know more and more and i think college helped out with this Mm -hmm. on on helping helping me you know learn from the other side uh you know try to think from somebody else's perspective stop you know being selfish thinking from your own american standpoint yeah try to put try to try to put yourself in their shoes wow um and i i kept doing that and that was i think that was the day i finally said i don't blame them was the day that there was a lot more acceptance and that was, uh, you know, you were able to put the anger and the hatred, not all of it, but, you know, at least that anger and hatred toward the Taliban, this enemy you were fighting, this enemy that tried to kill you. Uh, once I was able to put that behind me, you know, and stop having so much hatred toward them, then I was able to take that next step, you know, and, you know, start making the dean's list in college, start you know, working towards success because I didn't have that weight on my shoulders anymore mm. of of hatred toward, you know, this group of people that I only knew from my time in Afghanistan. And, uh, yeah, and we all know how the 20-year war has been going. We yes. know a good bit about the Taliban by now, but I knew nothing then. Mm. And you, you came in through a young age as well. That's very impressionable of how sometimes we become ethnocentric. I guess, mm-hmm. if you look at it that way, that oh yeah, I'm an American going into another country, and this is what I do, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, uh, I was talking with one of my one of my friends in the platoon about this. Uh, I, I feel like that is really one of the things that's out of touch as far as the military goes overseas and in, in the fight is we don't always play the cultural aspect. Uh, into it until it's almost too late you know you don't start learning about some of the customs and some of the culture until you're actually in afghanistan which doesn't make much sense mm-hmm. uh, you know these these are things i i felt like i should have been learning cultures and customs as much as i should have been learning you know how to hit a bullseye at 300 meters with my m4 because <laughs> you know in a way uh, understanding the culture could have you know could have uh, helped save just as many lives as that M4 could. Mm, so mm, that's so, a good point. Yeah. Wow. Well, I think you've got the you had the insight now on how you grew out from this horrific story of of uh, pain and suffering and and surviving that IED blast. 
Now, for those of you that do not know what an IED is, can you explain that further, Mr. Wally? Well, an IED is really just, um, it's, it, it can go as far as your imagination can mm. go. Um, it obviously it stands for improvised explosive device, mm-hmm. but, uh, you, when, when we got to Afghanistan, we started learning how creative they were with IEDs. Yes. Anything from a water bottle to, you know, old Russian landmines. Wow. Uh, IEDs can be anything. The Afghans are mainly known for making HME, homemade explosives. Um, you know, they'll take fertilizer um, and then end up in Afghanistan. They're only allowed, I believe it was 36% form nitrate, and they'll um, have a, a process that they go through to break down this fertilizer to be more uh, concentrated nitrate. And then they end up turning it into explosives. And what they do with it, like I said, it, it varies. Um, usually one of their favorite things is pressure plate IEDs mm. um, because uh, the reason it's one of their favorites is, um, example, you can have the pressure to where you know it needs 200 pounds to activate it. No Afghan weighs over 200 pounds. Mm. Uh, you know, food is scarce in a lot of areas. So mm. you can have all these Afghans walk over it, not set it off. And then one American walks over it. Obviously, uh, you know, most of us are going to weigh with the gear on. Uh-huh. Most are going to weigh over 200. So, um, yeah, that's what I mean. It's just the creativity. Uh, we didn't know 100% what mine was, but we believe because the amount of wires in the area that it was a remote controlled IED meaning somebody was actually watching me when they detonated it. Uh, and usually these are a very, very small percentage. They prefer the pressure plates. But, yes, IEDs are just a very gruesome, horrific thing that, uh, yeah, there, there's nothing like them. Um, obviously, my my scars show that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm. So, yeah. Wow. And in talking about um, scars, scars from wars are not just the physical wars, but the, the, the wounds suffered mentally, right? Mm-hmm. T- tell me about that process. Uh, did you seek mental health? What was going on there at Walter Reed? I'm sure they had psychiatrists on board or nurse practitioners, uh, physician assistants. Oh, everything. Um, and I mean, you're forced at it right off the get go. You know, you're, it doesn't matter if you're the guy who legitimately, um, lost it from getting hit or if you're the guy that, you know, is perfectly content with what happened and you're just happy you're alive. Every single person will be seeing therapists, multiple different therapists. Mm. Uh, you know, and that's, that's a part of the recovery. Uh, Walter Reed, you know, I, I say four speed because, you know, sometimes it's mm. it, the, you know, each person's going to, you know, do their job differently. And I didn't always agree with a lot of uh, the therapists. I would kind of storm out a lot of the time. I just it, it became everything was being reiterated way too much. It was just you go in there. Do you feel like killing yourself? Mm. It was just the same thing every single time. And at the time, I wasn't. I, I wouldn't say I was that bad off mentally. You know, I was very angry mm-hmm. and had a lot of resentment toward mm-hmm. not being able to finish out my tour. Yeah. And uh, and then especially the fact that I couldn't be there. You know, they ended up having war crimes in the platoon and I had to see my platoon break apart. Mm-hmm. And that just that that really destroyed me. Um, but there was never, you know, I never really had uh, nightmares after Germany. It wasn't anything like, uh, you know, when you see in the movies of, of PTSD, it, it wasn't really like that. And then 
when I got out of the military, that's when I thought, okay, everything's fine. You know, let's, I'm just going to put that behind me. I thought it was all downhill from there. And then I figured out where the, where the real mental distress came from. I, you know, right when I got out, I had first Mark Kerner, the one who I said got earlier got hit uh, with our lieutenant. He ended up, he died of cancer. He, when he got blown up, he found out he had terminal cancer. So he ended up dying that March after I got out and I started, um, yeah, I start drinking pretty heavy then, mm. uh, but nothing too serious just yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, it was just kind of like a, you know, party drinking. Then, um, later on that year, actually on, uh, National Purple Heart Day in August that year, um, ended up Matthew Haynes, the one that I said was paralyzed. He ended up getting a blood clot and passed away. And it mm. happened. I mean, it happened quickly. He was hospitalized, and I got a call from Dallas Haggard, uh, another one of our guys in the platoon. And I, I believe he was with our Doc, uh, Doc Feldheim. Um, and I, I can't remember if there's somebody else there, but they had flown, flown to Pennsylvania uh, because they found out, you know, the blood clot thing. And, I mean, it wasn't I, – I told them, you know, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it up there. I'm going to make it up there. And I, I didn't make it up there because it wasn't, you know, even the next day he was dead. Mm. And mm. so when he died, that's when it all went downhill, um, you know, and it was just I, I can remember from in between uh, Haynes dying and I believe, yeah, then later on Rule dying, I only spent one day sober. The fact that my body didn't shut down, I, I have no clue how. Wow. Um and so it was just I, I couldn't handle it. You know, I would I would do things like go to sleep with the picture of Haynes, um, you know, and uh, people would find me like coddled up drunk uh, next to the picture. And it was I. So that's when, you know, I didn't realize that at the time. But I, you know, looking back, I obviously didn't handle grief. Uh, very well mm. at all. Mm. Um, and especially from my guys, because when I got out of the military, you know, one of my very close friends from high school committed suicide. Uh, yeah, it hurt, but, uh, you know, I'm going to say it, it doesn't hurt like it hurt when, you know, some of the guys I served with, when they would pass, it just, it, it you know, it just pours hopelessness onto you. And especially I, I think me being, you know, one of the purple heart guys, I started playing in the back of my head, well, everybody that's dying is all the Purple Heart guys, so you're next. Mm. And, uh, you know, and obviously that was no way to live. And, you know, fast forwarding all the way up to Rule passing away, um, that's that's when I realized I had to change because me and Rule were a lot alike. Uh, and um, he ended up, he had, you know, a lot of what he saw overseas, you know, he ended up turning into anger and ended up getting in a struggle. He, I, I believe he got in an argument with somebody at this party and went to go pull out a gun. And when he went to go pull out a gun, uh, I believe his blood brother ended up trying to go over there and get, you know, get the gun away from uh-huh, him. Uh-huh. And uh, in the struggle to get the gun away from him, the gun went off in his gut and oh, he ended goodness. up, he ended up bleeding out on the way to the hospital. Um, so I went up to Haggard at the time, uh, Dallas Haggard in Ohio. I, I was up there to see him because previously, and, you know, after Haynes had died, it just kept going downhill more and more to the point where, uh, you know, I was ready to end it. 
and um you know my dad had walked in on it all and mm. um and it, it was just it was very strange because he just came over and he 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 said he knew something was wrong and i believe this goes back to i i had a phone call with him and i was just you know told him i love him and I think, I think my dad knew something was wrong, you know, came check on me. And then, uh, you know, I was hammered drunk in the floor and, uh, yeah, I was, I was, felt like committing suicide that day. Mm. And, um, and then, um, yeah, shortly after that, he said, you know, you got to go see one of your guys because that, that, that was really the only thing that could help me at that point. You know, there was no medication I could take. There was nothing at that point. All I needed was, you know, some of my guys uh, that I served with over there. And I needed to talk about some of this stuff, but mm. I didn't need to talk about it with, you know, I couldn't talk with a therapist because I yeah. needed to talk about geographical locations, things that, you know, only somebody else that was there that day would understand. Mm. So I, we, we drove up to Ohio and yeah, it was the very next day. So because we thought everything was going to be positive, you know, I'm there, uh, got haggard around me we're going to get through this. Like we're there. Yeah. He, he was there for me immediately and uh, thought everything was going to be fine. Then next thing you know, we're driving to over to Indiana to go to Jared rules funeral, um, which we had called him the night before I told him I was in town and, you know, we said, Hey, you need to come out here. I'm, I'm in town. You're only two hours away. Let's all get together. And he said, he said, yeah, you know, he was kind of excited about the idea. And then that night is when it happened. So, uh, yeah, then his funeral was, was an open casket funeral. He was, you know, full military honors. He was in mm. uniform and just look, looking down at him. It just, I saw myself because of how much alike we were. So then was kind of the point where I realized I had to change. I had to do something because if I don't do something, I'm going to be the next one in that casket. Wow. Um, so he was, uh, whether he knows it or not, you know, kind of how Alevis helped save me on the ground rule, you know, doesn't know he did it, but he helped save me again then. Mm. Mm. How, how was that processing of your thoughts and how did it become like a light bulb moment that I'm heading spiraling down and here I am, I'm seeing my peer in a casket and then you see yourself there that this is going to be me if I don't change how how did how did you process that oh how did I process it mm -hmm. um I, I, I processed processed it very quickly it was all in a matter of well, you know 30 seconds of staring at his dead body mm -hmm. uh and you know uh, obviously I didn't make the change overnight I just understood right then and there uh that that it has to happen. So, mm. uh, I, I would say I processed it very, very well, you know, very quickly, but it's just obviously, you know, you don't then wake up the next day and everything's okay. You got to start making those steps, start finding those strides and, yeah. you know, and figure out what the answers are because uh, all the way from, you know, getting, getting injured that day and, you know, going through those struggles all the way up to right now, uh, I, you know, would learn that every veteran was different, you know, and we all could be helped out in different ways, you know, whereas, whereas one person, you know, maybe going fishing is that answer, you know, where maybe it's for me, jujitsu is the answer. Everybody's got their own answer. Um, but I knew I had to find something, I had to start doing something. Mm. I had to, you know, find that purpose again. Yeah. And then that's, 
that's one of the main things with veterans, especially the ones that get injured. Most of these guys like myself, you know, wanted to make a career out of this. This was their life goal. And then it's stripped away from them. Uh, so, you know, and that's why you'll even see some amputees stay in the military, which I went through that whole process and I almost stayed in. Mm. I'm very glad I didn't. Uh, uh, they ended up offering me recruiting and military intelligence at the very end. And, and, uh, then I found out you got paid to go to school. (laughs) So, so I got out immediately and uh, started, started school, which school, once again, that was one of those answers. And, uh, that's why I would try to encourage veterans later on to go to college because especially, especially, especially those with a TBI, traumatic brain injury, mm-hmm. because my my TBI, when I first got injured uh, and I was in that hospital bed, I, I could barely speak. I would be in the middle of a conversation. I completely forget what I'm talking about. I, you know, stutter a lot. Uh, just it, that that's how I knew there was a traumatic brain injury. That must and, be very uh, frustrating. I mean, not to be able to get the words out. And wow. Oh, yeah. And uh, so college was one of those yeah. things where I think the TBI kind of started. Uh, I don't want to say it's you know completely healed because the TBI is you know there forever. But mm-hmm. uh, you know working on memory, you know having to, mm-hmm. having to do just plain out schoolwork, homework, you know, and tests. That and I always wanted to do. I didn't want to really take advantage of you know all the disabilities, you know, and do the test from home. I, I didn't want to do anything like that. I wanted to be like every other student, mm, and mm. I would go to class and you know, and I would take my own notes. I didn't let other people take notes for me. And I tried to do everything just like everybody else, you know, just like a just like I had all my limbs. And you know, year after year, I started to notice that the TBI kind of faded away. All that, you know all those conditions before kind of just faded somewhere in there. Mm. And, you know, and I felt like my brain was, you know, healthy again to, to where it was before. Uh Uh, So that, that definitely, if it wasn't for college, I don't think I could have got the TBI track. So like I said, that was just one of those many, many tools that you got to pull out to, you know, keep a, keep a healthy mental health. Yes, and you you talked about your coping mechanisms that you've you go went to college, back to college, finding that purpose. You know that transition is very hard on our military service members from being active duty, and then getting injured or getting out. What's next for me, right? So tell me about about your purpose and and how you. You took the steps, the many steps, the many little steps, and where you are now. So I guess it really starts back at Walter Reed when, you know, when you're going to all these therapists, they're also force you toward the end to, you know, to have a plan before they allow you to leave the military. And, you know, whether it be college, whatever it is, that's really the time frame that I start thinking, like, well, what am I going to do? I I have no clue. Uh, Like I said, I was one of those guys that planned on, you know, staying in the military, just retiring, getting a boat. And uh, calling calling that a uh, you know <laughs> calling that it, <laughs> and um, so it, at first it was you know I wanted to because of 
what my brothers did for me on the ground, mm. I wanted to give back to the veteran community. Yes. So I started thinking, you know, what can I do? What can I do? And, you know, one of the very first things I wanted to do uh, was actually I wanted to be a therapist. Mm. And then then I realized I don't want to go to school that long. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and then so I kind of put that idea to the side and I just kept saying, you know, how can I help the veteran community and how can I give back? Mm. You know, and I didn't know what direction to go. And, and I, I just kept trying to figure it out. And somewhere in there was where the political idea, you know, that's where the political science degree came yeah. from was because in that, in that time frame was when I said, you know, well, I think politics, there's not a lot of veterans in politics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so maybe if we get more in there, you know, when, well, what was that right after World War Two was, I believe is what Congress was. Yeah, they, they had how many more veterans than we have now uh, in Congress. So I, I just I wanted to see more people backing up veterans. And I've realized that in politics, you know, one false one swoop of the pen, you can help out hundreds of thousands of veterans. Yes. Whereas whereas, uh, you know, a lot of the I, I thought that would be a great way. Whereas, you know, when I was with the foundation. Uh, the PTSD Foundation in America, I, I would, you know, I, it, it was amazing. It was very rewarding helping out, you know, one veteran at a time. Uh, but I, you know, I wanted to help, help out bulk and I thought, I thought politics was the way to do it. So that's why I went and, uh, you know, got my degree in political science and, uh, I was mm-hmm. interning with Congressman Doug Collins, yeah. uh, toward the end of college and then, Right after I graduated, I was offered a job in his office. Um, so I immediately graduated, went straight into doing that. And mm. I, I handled, uh, you know, VA casework and Ooh. any, anything military related. Uh, I, I handled so the, also the service academies and then, um, then also anything firearms related. But the military thing was also, you know, once again, rewarding trying to you know because there is nothing i loved more than you know going to work and knowing that when i go to work that day i get to chew out the va that that made my day (laughs) (laughs) so so it was uh very good to be able to do that you know obviously uh he we all know how the story goes he didn't win so now i don't have a job but i'm always you will always always have a job yeah i just i just always you know at, at the end of the day the purpose was to just give back so you know whether the the it, it can be so many different ways whether the next way is you know to write a book I, you know mm-hmm. or or whether the next way is maybe i need to go to you know graduate school mm-hmm. uh, i i don't know but uh you know there's there's always there's always a purpose along the way and i just i you know i find different ways to do it but the purpose is there Yes, yes. And I think you've, you've, you're finding your purpose in life and it's amazing what you've done. And you've used your skills and your strengths uh, about uh, in life that you've learned, right? How do you handle those stressors in life from the battlefield, boots on the ground, and now back to the United States? and being uh, present with your warrior groups. And by the way, I've met uh, Mr. Samuel Wally in one of the warrior groups that I've attended, um, and he's been very active with, with the military service members and also the, the veterans in the community here in the state of Georgia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's just... Uh... 
I, I felt like it has always been uh, nonstop that, uh, ever since I got out of the military. And, you know, I'll have people ask, well, well, why don't you go, you know, apply here, apply there, go get another job, hurry up. <laughs> and I just, I just say, you know, I listen, I haven't had a break, it, you know, since mm-hmm. 2012. I go on a deployment, I get blown up, I go to Walter Reed, go through rehab, deal with that, get out of the military, go straight into college, deal with all the deaths. You know, I didn't really get anywhere with college. Um, you know, I had a withdrawal and incomplete uh, around the time. You know, the the, in, the withdrawal was when Haynes died. The incomplete was when Rule died. So I didn't really get anywhere. But yeah, the uh, so finish that, then you know, go straight into working for a congressman. And there was just no breaks. So I'm I'm actually really enjoying uh, so this time nice. off. <laughs> I'm not. I just I don't want to do anything for a second. <laughs> I just, I just need a, I need a little break and, you know, so I, I was able to take a little break this month, you know, I was able to read the book. So I, I enjoy this time off, but yeah, it was nonstop there for a little bit. Tell me about this book, First Platoon. Now you haven't stopped, but this is awesome. Tell me about that. Well, so uh, it started about three years ago. I had uh, a series of emails from uh, faculty and staff at University of North Georgia, and I and I thought that was very weird. You know, they were all contacting me because this. They said there's this, you know, author, the Pulitzer Prize finalist, and she wants to talk to you about. Uh, Afghanistan. Mm. Um, and that's all I knew. And they said, you know, we could not give her any information about you, uh, obviously. So they said, but she gave all her information. So here it is. It's mm-hmm. up to you. So I said, you know, okay, well, I'll, I'll see what she wants. So I gave her a call and, um, she was extremely nice. And I, <laughs> but I, I probably for about an hour straight just questioned her, questioned her yeah. intent with all this yeah. because, because you know a lot of a lot of the time when people would want to talk about our platoon, it was the same thing every time. They want to know they don't care about the guys in the platoon. They always want to go back to that Lieutenant Lawrence story and talk about war crimes. Well, the thing was I was never involved in any of the war crimes, so to always want to talk about that was annoying, and I just. No, I wanted to protect some of my guys if mm. that's what she was doing, was just strictly mm. wanting to talk about that because I knew that was not, you know, my guys don't want to, they don't want to just talk about that. That that was a very painful, you know, moment going through, going through the trial that I, I understand the stress from my, my prior, prior legal issues that, you know, that was, uh, you know, the, as you read in the book, uh, a few of them were looking at murder charges. So, mm-hmm. so, uh, yeah, after questioning her, I, I, I noticed that even though she was interested in the war crimes and what happened there, that was not her main focus. She, she wanted to understand a lot of the other stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one of the main things she kept hitting on was like one of these, uh, big firefights we got into out east of the first area I was in. Mm-hmm. And then you start, then she start, start talking more about biometrics. Yeah. Then you start to understand, you know, her intent with all this. The main thing is the biometrics, not, mm. not the, you know, she's not trying to, you know, just do a, another story on Lawrence like everybody else is. She wanted to, you know, really dive into the biometrics. And that's when I realized that's why uh, another reason she was focusing on this big, big firefight we had out east. Uh, because we would always talk about how bad, badly mangled the bodies were. 
and then it started to make sense along the way. And, and she did a very good job at, you know, teaching. You know, I'm, I'm sure she did this with some of the other guys too. You know, mm-hmm. that she would, she would, you know, bring new information to the table all the time that nobody knew. And, uh, so it was, it was a very interesting experience, you know, and I would talk to her almost, uh, you know, once a month and every interview was at least one to three hours long. Wow. And we would just sit there and talk, talk, talk forever. Um, so hell, I didn't even know what was going to be in the book, honestly, because I had talked so much. I had probably given my whole life story. <laughs> so I had, I had no clue what was going to be in the book. Um, I, I, I really didn't, I didn't know until like everybody else, you know, reading the thing. Yeah. Are you um, happy with how the book turned out? Yeah. Yes. Overall. Um, yes. There's, there's parts in there. I wish that would have been added or, you know, everybody's got their little um, scrutinies that they can make. But overall I say yes, because, you know, the main intent, I, I don't want the platoon to look bad. The platoon doesn't look bad in the book. You know, it makes, it, it, if anything, it paints, you know, it almost puts the army as a whole, the big army, you know, points, you know, them out more as a bad guy than us. Mm. So, you know, I, I hope this restores some honor that was, wow. you know, I felt stripped away mm. from the platoon, you know, not, not that I was there, you know, when the war crimes happened, but I saw the effect it had on everybody mm. and I saw how it tore everybody apart because, you know, all the way from, I, I would try to Skype some of them while I was in the hospital and I would notice none of them were together. And I noticed that they were not, um, at the, at the, yeah, the cop that was near our checkpoint. And things started adding up and they couldn't talk about it. So, and, you know, I finally got a little bit of information out of one of them to pretty much say, hey, something really bad happened on the ground. Um, and a lot of us are looking at charges right now. Mm. That was the first time I learned about it. And then, you know, as time would go on, I would learn more. Um, so, but yeah, there, even, even in the book, First Platoon, there was, there was things even in there that I, I learned new that I didn't even know because she went through every single person almost in the platoon and she did a very thorough job in interviewing people. Uh, you know, there's, there's silly little small facts mm-hmm. in there that are, you know, <laughs> that, that like, uh, I think, you know, at one point it said that I loaded the uh carl gustav for carson to shoot into this village uh, that was actually one of one of uh one of our other platoon mates renoso uh <laughs> and it, that was actually a very funny story because when he loaded that carl gustav he tried to run off the building and and we actually had video footage of this because carson had a uh, gopro on his helmet mm-hmm. which i think was very illegal so if anybody's hearing this then uh <laughs> yeah oh well uh, but <laughs> He, so we looked back at the video and all you hear is Carson yelling, is it loaded? And then he turns around to look at Renoso and all you see is Renoso's little head sticking out above the ladder. And he just kind of gives him a thumbs up because <laughs> uh, for those who don't know, when a call Gustav yes, goes explain. off, it is it's a it's a recoilless rifle, uh, I believe mm-hmm. an 82 millimeter recoilless rifle. So. Uh, when this thing shoots, everybody, everybody around knows, it, you know, it was fired. It, it puts wow. an RPG to shame. Ooh. And uh, so we actually, yeah, during that firefight, which uh, she does talk a good bit about in the book, um, it, just the simple day we had to go out east, but yeah, it ended up turning into, uh, 
believe that day was like 28 confirmed kills. And mm. the only, the only way we knew anything was just body parts were scattered. You almost, uh, there was just a, what had happened, the reason they were scattered. Uh, <laughs> let me explain. Uh, you know, throughout the course of the firefight, uh, things got very heated. Uh, you know, there was at one point we were surrounded on three sides. We mm. had to move up, uh, had to move up a hill, get to high ground. Um, there was an Afghan National Army member shot in the head in the process, um, but we ended up getting up to this compound, and about that time, they ended up dropping a 500-pound JDAM on this compound that wasn't even 200 meters from us. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the JDAM hit the compound. Taliban weren't dead. They kept going, and then next thing you know, we're bringing an Apache in. The Apache is uh, you know, hitting them with Hellfire missiles. The Apache ended up doing a a 30 mic mic gun run, which uh, is the uh, gun on the front of the Apache, which was one of the most terrifying things I've ever seen in my life. Mm. It just went on one side of the compound and, and then just kind of floated to the other side. And all you just heard was very low thumps. And it was uh, ended up, you know, just shredding this compound apart. My goodness. Uh, they, that they ended up, they kept firing, you know, they, they just kept going. We didn't realize how many there were. And, you know, so the guys were actually, um, Carson was one of them. Uh, Carson at one point went black on ammo. So we had guys that were actually running completely out of ammo in this firefight. Um, so we unloaded everything we had during that thing to the point where it went, you know, we were fighting almost from sun up to sundown and Taliban. Finally, when the sun went down, they stop because uh, with our, you know, night vision capabilities, they don't stay around and fight at night. So mm-hmm. then with the cover of night was when we were able to move down there and conduct this, uh, as the book talks a lot about, this BDA, this battle damage assessment, um, which we had to do time and time again. Um, it's just this time was different because this time you can't. Uh, you, you, there was there was no way to get our, there's there's no way to get iris scans. There's no way to get you know fingerprints off of you know people who have their hands just completely mm-hmm. yep. burnt. It, mm-hmm. There it was unrealistic. You know there was no getting this BDA at the time that they wanted, and this actually started in the middle of the firefight. And and once again, I I, re- I, she, I wish she in first platoon would have gone after them more. Uh, she was a little bit nice to um, the uh, colonel at the time in charge, but it actually came up while we were in the middle of the firefight. It came all the way from our full, full, bleh, full bird colonel um, all the way down to conduct this BDA while we were actually in the middle of the firefight. Wow. And I, I remember our lieutenant at the time just said, mm, you know, no, that's mm. that's that's idiotic we're not there's a hundred meter open field you have to cross to get to the compound when you you know come down the hill Mm. from where we were so it was just it didn't didn't make any sense and you know they just kept pushing it kept pushing it you will go get this bda you will and um finally they took some volunteers and this was where uh you know this wasn't included in the book but this was where haynes and me made the deal because uh, he volunteered to go out there. Because mm-hmm. Matthew Haynes, even though he was a, a you know little skinny, jolly, always happy, always making jokes, the guy was you know by far one of the bravest guys in the platoon, hands down. You know everything from he was one of our minesweepers, wow. uh, which is one of the most terrifying jobs. You I know, and then so. 
Mr. Wally, Mr. Wally, we're going to take a break and then we're going to continue this discussion. One second. So we are talking to Mr. Samuel Wally here uh, and he will continue with his story with uh, what has happened. Go ahead, sir. So I believe I was on the yeah, the Haynes portion. Mm-hmm. You were. Um, yeah, which uh, once again, going back to the book, the book actually says I volunteered uh, to cross this bill to go get the BDA. Uh-huh. That that is not correct. This was one of the only orders that I I straight up said I'm not doing overseas, uh, and so they went to get volunteers, and you know, and some were kind of forcefully told they're going to go out there. And uh, Haynes volunteered to go out there. You know, was, like I said, always being the brave person he is, mm. uh, he was he was one of the ones to volunteer to go out there. And he came up to me before he, uh, you know, went to go down this hill, which seemed like a walk to death. It wow. just it really seemed like a suicide attempt. And you know, he just made me shake on it right then and there. He said, "Hey, you have to do me a favor. If I die crossing this field." You have to name your your kid after me, and I just kind of I just kind of laughed. I was like, you know, the same thing we always say: you're you're not going to die, you're not going to get hurt, you're you're going to be fine, man. Mm. So uh, he ends up. Yeah, they wanted me to go out there too. I I refused. I said I said well, you know why? Especially uh, you know go get a BDA in the middle of the firefight. It just doesn't make sense. Mm. Especially the, like they're they're not all dead. What are we going to do? Walk over there and just say hey. Uh, can you please not shoot? We just need to count the bodies and, you know, get some biometrics of the bodies. <laughs> That's not the way warfare works. Mm. And so, uh, they, they actually ended up going across this field. And, um, so I stayed with one of the gun teams because at the time, uh, I, I was still with weapon squad. So I stayed with one of the 240s to provide overwatch. It's just the bad thing was, when they got about 50 meters, the Taliban let them, let them get about halfway across the field. They obviously did that on purpose. They waited till they got about halfway across the field, and they opened up fire. And um, uh, where they were, our 240, we couldn't really provide any cover fire because the position they were in, if we would have provided cover fire, there was a chance we could actually hit one of our own guys. So we decided not to shoot the 240. Unfortunately, that now left our guys pinned down out there without any cover fire, and they were stuck out there to do, uh, you know, to get out of it on their own. Mm. Um, but at that time, my uh, my squad leader on weapon squad at the time was Joshua John Beluka, and um, he actually ended up that firefight. You know, getting he he got down there to go provide uh, smoke for cover because um during this time the squad leader that was out you know on the patrol to get the bda he actually went in the fetal position and um and started crying over the radio mm-hmm. and um you know and for a squad leader to do that he put all of his guys in danger um and he is the only one from the platoon i will not talk to to this day mm-hmm. um and it goes directly to that day. Um, so, but fortunately, the good part of the story is they all, you know, they, John Beluka got that smoke out. They were able to get back. Not a single person was hit. 
I don't know how, um, you know, and then once they actually moved back and got, you know, closer to the hill, we were able to provide cover fire for that 240 and everything was, you know, everything was all right. And no, not, you know, besides that one um, Afghan National Army member that was shot uh, directly in front of me in the head, Hmm. uh, it, it went right in this Kevlar and that's where I found out those helmets don't work. Uh, and, uh, yes, they, yeah, they don't stop, uh, anything, you know, like a, like an AK 47, they won't stop a seven sixty by three nine. They just don't tell privates that really. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, so, so yeah, he, he was unfortunately the only one to pass that day. And actually after that firefight, mm. that platoon of Afghan national army members refused to work with us, uh, oh. because they said that we were just trying, we were pretty much on suicide missions, that we were just trying to kill ourselves um, because we were just picking fights. Uh, so they refused to work with us. And then we had to have a commando unit come out there and work with us. And the commando unit is just the Afghan National Army's pretty much their special forces. Um, and then that's where we would learn how brutal the commandos were, uh, you know, because of things like the squad leader was trying to, there was a one compound we went to and I was pulling guard outside the compound. And I remember one of my buddies came out with very big eyes and I was like, what? Cause I heard, you know, fussing in there. And I said, mm-hmm. what the hell just happened? Mm-hmm. And he said the, uh, the Afghan commando squad leader was trying to rip off the fingernails and toenails of the family members oh. to get information. Oh, oh. And unfortunately, you know, us as Americans, we can't tell them, what they can and can't do. This is their country, mm-hmm. not ours. And that's, you know, why even in the book includes how the ANA would start leading from the front of the patrols. It was, uh, you know, that was, it was their country at the end of the day. Even, even the, you know, when we would capture high, uh, you know, like my birthday, capture the number two of the Taliban in RC South, uh, you know, even something like that, we have to, you know, hand them over to the Afghan National Army a lot of the time. Uh, so, so yeah, we, we, uh, experience, uh, interesting things like that at times also. <laughs> and and as, as a military service member, we abide by rules, right? We abide by the Geneva Convention. We abide by those things that we, we know are correct or our, our, our conscience are what is right. Oh but, yeah. My, my uh, dad's from Germany, so I had to learn at a very young age what the Geneva Convention mm-hmm, is. <laughs> mm-hmm. Law of armed conflict, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so how did you process that when you when things like that are happening and things can be chaotic and it's like you cannot even process that as a young uh, infantryman? I mean, at the end of the day, I am a, you know, I'm, I was a I was a private first class at the time mm-hmm. uh, because I had been demoted stateside. The funny thing is, I was demoted by the same guy who went in the feto position and ah. curled up in a ball. Ah. Um, <laughs> he was the one who ended up pushing me for to, to get Article 15. So the day I was actually supposed to get my E4 specialist, I was demoted, and mm. instead of getting an E4, I got a nice old demotion. So I had mm. that PFC. I had to I had to earn that PFC back. So mm. so. Uh, yeah, I, you know, you're you're just a kid and you're just a private. You just do your job. When things like that happen, you don't think about it. That's not 
that's not your place to think about it. You know, even like I said, I learned a lot of things from reading the book because I was not in a command position. Mm -hmm. There was things I would learn about uh, specifically, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I, I didn't talk to Captain Swanson for probably four, four years maybe after I got blown up, and I finally talked with him, and he was one of the main ones to reveal a lot of the things to me that I just, you don't know as a private. Those are things that are only meant for leadership to understand. And, and for, uh, for non-military people, the military, I mean, so that the civilians can understand, the military has a high-ranking things that we have to follow, right? You follow the chain of command, you need to abide by the rules, everything is, there's a written rule for everything, how you dress, how you eat, everything. So not knowing why you're told to go to this place or what to do, and then four years later, oh, I did not know that, that mission, you know, because you're not privy to those information. Yeah, and sometimes for good reasons. I yeah. think, you know, a lot of the time, you know, people like, you know, Captain Swanson was just trying to protect us. If, you know, if, if you send a group of about 25 guys out, you know, to uh, we'll just say you send them to a checkpoint and then, you know, and they all know that we'll just say, you know, that checkpoint was overrun by Taliban. How many of those 25 guys are really going to want to go to that checkpoint? How how excited are they going to be? Are they going to have that will to fight? So I, I completely understand why the mm. chain of command holds mm. things back. But mm -hmm. at the same time, I think, you know, I think a lot of things are extremely disrespectful for the chain of command to hold back. Like the book includes how, you know, they held back, um, you know, the information that Alevis had died. Mm. I, I think that, you know, it's, it's kind of disgraceful. I understand these guys got a job to do, but this is their brother. They deserve to know that information. Yeah. Um, so, so sometimes that, that chain of command can, uh, That's can become, right. you know, a thing that puts guys in danger, uh, on the ground at times. And as, as you've probably uh, read in the book, you know, even can have the negative effect of if, you know, you have a bad lieutenant giving orders and, you know, and then you go ahead and go through with that. Some, sometimes those orders aren't right, mm -hmm. you know, and that's where, that's where you always got to, at the end of the day, yeah, you, you may be an army soldier overseas, but at the end of the day, you're still a human being and yeah. you just, you have to do the right thing. And, and I think your humanity comes out, Mr. Wally, and how you think about your your peers. You know, you, you went back and, and, and you're worried about everybody else. You know, I got to be back there on the ground and be with my troops because I cannot be in this hospital bed. I got to be there to help them. That brotherhood, that sense of brotherhood. Talk Talk to me about that sense of brotherhood that other civilians will will never understand i was about to, i was just about to say that that's yeah. that's the thing it's just it's almost impossible to explain because i I'm, I'm still amazed by it to this day because like like i said going back to you know i've had i've had family members you know pass away like my my grandfather died uh, about three years ago and i i don't remember crying mm. at all Mm. And um, the reason I didn't cry was because, you know, he he was he, even though, he you know, he, he was a World War Two veteran, he got to live a long and happy 
life. He got to see his grandchildren. He, he had a great life. I, I could handle that. I was, I was happy to see mm. him be at peace. Mm. Uh, you know, watching, watching a little kid, watching some, you know, a 22 year old, a 23 year old, a 24 year old, uh, pass away. That's, you know, that affects you completely different. And like you said, these are, it, these are your brothers too mm. at the same time. It's just, you, it's, it's a bond that was, I wouldn't even say it was built, you know, at Fort Bragg because I, I was kind of an outcast of the platoon because I was put out as a troublemaker <laughs> by that, you know, that sergeant uh-huh. who ended up being horrible in combat. Mm. Uh, so I, I didn't really, there was, I was very close with like, uh, Brian Bynes in the platoon. I was very, Haynes and me lived beside each other. So I was very close with Haynes. Um, but it wasn't until you're in combat that, you know, when you start, the bullets start flying, you start put it, you, you have no option, but to put all, all the trust you have into the guys to your left and right. You, you have to give up everything, Mm -hmm. um, because your life is in their hands and their lives are in your hands. And, you know, like I said, little mistakes, like luckily nobody died that day, but little mistakes like a sergeant going down in the fetal position uh, and crying, that puts people's lives in jeopardy. So we have to have absolute full trust in one another. And once you give it up overseas, you know, and these guys are your brothers, they're your brothers forever. Uh, because I, yeah, still to this day, you know, if if I'm, you know, if I, if I'm struggling a little bit, you know, at all, there's sometimes I, I just, I got to call one of them. Mm. I can't, you know, I can't always just go see a therapist. Sometimes those are things that are meant to just talk to them and still, cause that, that, you know, that absolute trust that I talked about, it's still there. It doesn't die. It doesn't die. And that's the reason why there's a, a saying, I got your six, right? We in the military mm-hmm. has that notion, uh, that information that I'm here for you no matter what. And I'm a phone call away. And, and uh, no therapist, no civilian therapist will be able to understand that. Can you mm-hmm. t- talk to me? What, what can you tell the, a therapist, a civilian therapist or a nurse practitioner who's never been in the military and then treating you. What's your oh, approach? A... What? What? How do you tell them that you won't? You will never understand me. So don't tell me this. This. This works, right? Yeah, and I, I'm sure it changes uh, per veteran because e- even each veteran is going to be a little bit different. Mm-hmm. And you know, and because uh, I'll, I'll talk to. Uh, I'll talk to, you know, students at a a local university here each semester um, about treating, you know, uh, occupational therapy, about, Mm -hmm. you know, treating amputees. And and I'll kind of say the same thing to them of just because I'm saying all these things, you know, you got to remember for a civilian, it's going to be a little bit different, Um, you know, and then even each veteran is going to be a little bit different because then you got to play into account like somebody like me. I take no medication. I have never taken any medication for uh, post-traumatic stress, and I never plan on it. And whereas somebody else could Mm -hmm. be like, you know, one of my best friends that died this past Labor Day, Mm -hmm. um, Travis Botkin was from 2nd Platoon. He, he, uh, you know, he would take a lot of this med- uh, medication for post-traumatic stress. So, and he would look like a zombie at times. So, uh, you know, 
a therapist talking to him is even though both of us, you know, may say, yeah, you know, you don't know what we're going through. He, it's going to be in different ways. You know, he's not even going to, you know, he, he won't even say anything or respond to you. Whereas I may, you know, say something very mean, uh, you know, how I can't really say how they can be successful. I just know for me, there, there got to, there was a point at Walter Reed where I mainly went to one therapist and he, and the reason I would always go to him and he was actually, the only thing is he was the anger management counselor. Um, so that was another reason is he knew how to, uh, help my anger. And the funny thing was, it was because he had been through all the same things. He had served in the military. Mm. He was an 11 Bravo, um, prior to, you know, becoming a therapist. And then he also taught the anger management classes, which <laughs> I was forced into, uh, at Walter Reed because I ended up snapping on a, uh, on one of the occupational therapists. Um, so me and him became very close and he was very instrumental in, you know, making sure I got out of there in one piece. Wow. Um, so, so yeah, he's, that's just one of those things. Cause right off the bat, he finds that, that key component, you know, he relates to me somehow. Mm-hmm. And then that second, you, there's some sort of relation, you know, all he had to do was say, you know, just to get a little hook, you know, just to get the fish on the line. All he had to say was I was an 11 Bravo, you know, I was in the military and then now <laughs> I'm not storming out of his office. Mm-hmm. Now I'm not, now I'm not cussing him out. Now I kind of look at him and I'll say, well, how did, how did you deal with it? You know, how I started asking questions then. And then, you know, by then he, you know, he, he had me hooked and he was able, <laughs> he was able to finally help out. And whereas other therapists, other therapists had failed and he was able to come in and succeed just by, you know, finding some common ground. So mm. you know, maybe, maybe that's something that could really help out is just, you know, while asking questions, find something in common because then, then that may, you know, for, for example, like, uh, with Travis Botkin and, um, as you know about from the book, uh, James Twist committing suicide, yes, uh, yes. both of them, for example, lost their mother right before, uh, you know, they were in the military and deployed. Mm. So, you know, if somebody could find out stuff like that and be able to like try to somewhat relate to, to that pain, uh, that that's really, you know, some of the main ways to help out even like that. That's what made it somewhat easy uh, while working with the foundation was these guys were talking to. You know, I didn't like doing things by the books verbatim because that's what I would always try to do. I would try to figure out what they had been through overseas. And then when I figure out what they had been through overseas, mm-hmm. I try to relate it to something I had been through overseas. And then I can tell them how I got past it. Wow. Uh, you know, there, there was one guy that I remember what was eating him up was killing a kid. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, he had, it killed countless people in Iraq and none of them bothered him. But the one, and this goes for a lot of guys, one of the things that bothered him was a kid. So I started telling him a story about, uh, one of the times I got shot at in, in, uh, one of the towers at Panzai. Um, I ended up actually getting shot at by a father and his son. I remember watching them pray. And it was very weird because they were praying out of the um, call to prayer time, which mm-hmm. I knew was very funky. Um, so I but and then they just kind of walked off and I didn't think anything of it. So then as I'm going to leave guard, 
Um, mind you, I have, uh, you know, uh, this is definitely not supposed to happen overseas, but mind you, I had no shirt on, no helmet, no nothing. Hmm. <laughs> and I'm just sitting there and yeah, I start to leave guard and one of my platoon mates, Perkins is coming up the ladder and we start, I start getting shot at, at that tower and it started, um, hitting, hitting the tower just above me. Wow. And so I did what I do best. I jumped on that 240, racked the 240, and I started unloading it um, right where I just saw that um, father and son. Because what had happened was the father and son had gone around the corner of the wall, picked up uh, AKs, and started to shoot at our tower. So um, I started to lay down the 240, and they actually tried to run away. Mm. And they actually ran into an American squad out there, and then they had to turn back the other direction. And when they turned back the other direction... I remember seeing um, shadows drop because from, you know, from over 100 meters away, uh, you don't you can't always see the whites in their eyes. You just see shadows fall over. You see. And I think that takes away some of the humanity out of it is you're you're just dropping objects in a way. Mm. And I remember somebody screaming out, stop firing, stop firing. There's Americans out there. And I knew somebody was dead. I knew I just hit somebody. And I, uh, like, I, I remember just wanting to puke when that happened. Mm. And I, I took off. Perkins was in the tower. I took off toward the, uh, where our radio was in one of the vehicles and one of the squad leaders was in there. And I just remember I was panicking and I was saying, you know, are, are all the Americans okay? Are all the Americans okay? And I just like was, I was freaking out. And then, you know, he got on the radio and, he heard all the Americans were okay. So mm-hmm. I was like, okay, I could breathe. Yes, um, no friendly yeah. fires. No friendly fires. Yeah. Well, second ID, the platoon that was out there on patrol, they ended up uh, recovering the bodies. And matter of fact, I ended up meeting at Walter Reed, one of the guys who was on that patrol. He got blown mm. up the day after I got blown up. Wow. Really ironic. Wow. Um, yeah, so he was at Walter Reed, and he started telling me a story about a father and son getting shot by a 240 um, from <laughs> an 82nd checkpoint. And I was, I looked at him. I said, uh, "I said, I thought um, at first, I thought they had shot, like shot him, shot them from behind." And I thought that was because I, I didn't know what all the chaos. And mm-hmm. they were like, "Oh yeah, no, some guy from the 82nd on this checkpoint, mm-hmm. uh, they, they, you know, they unloaded on these two. And I was like, uh, "That was, yeah, that was me." So that's wow. where I really got that confirmation um, that, you know, that, hey, you killed a father and son. Um, but the mm-hmm. way I took it and the way I would tell that veteran that day mm-hmm. to, you know, to try to get past it was that's not your fault. You know, that wasn't I, I had to I, I really, you know, I, I drank quite a bit when I first heard that. And it, it did affect me for, you know, a week or so. And then I kind of just thought about it and said, that's not my fault. That's the dad's fault. How, mm. you know, how dare you bring your child yeah. in into this? And, I, and, you know, I'm fine. If you want to shoot at me and you want to, you know, go to war, let's let's do it. But don't bring mm. your kid into this. And, you know, and all that resentment, just for about a week, the resentment I had toward myself shifted toward that dad. Mm. And I just, oh, I couldn't believe that the dad did that. And I told the same thing to that veteran that day was, you know, listen, that kid had a gun. If you did not kill the kid, the kid would 100% have killed you because that is what somebody has trained them to do. Mm. And sadly enough, in this war, that is what happens. And, you know, not just this war, 
people, there were stories about it happening in Vietnam. So this is nothing new, bringing kids into warfare. Um, but coping with it was something completely different. So I know that really affected a lot of guys. So when I would tell them my story and then tell them how I got past it by, you know, shifting the blame away from myself, then that was, you know, then I saw a light in his eye mm. and, you know, and he kind of thought about it and said, yeah, you know what? You're right. It, it's not my fault. It's somebody else's mm-hmm. fault for bringing mm-hmm. the child into war. Yeah. And so, yeah, to give a really long answer to your question, <laughs> that, that yeah, is... I guess just find some common ground. Yeah. yeah, the common ground, that therapeutic alliance from that therapist uh, and, and finding that, yes, I'm, I'm from this platoon or I've dealt with it this way and that you were able to help another veteran cope and process what he was going through. That is an incredible story. Um, Mr. Wally, you have been an instrumental person. You're a hero. You have been helping so many veterans out there in our local community and in the PTSD Foundation. What What is next for you? That's that's a really really good question uh-huh. that I uh, you know even I start thinking about after I realized I didn't have a job mm-hmm. um, you know and the first thing I told myself is just keep the knife sharp and when I say keep the knife sharp uh, continue reading continue to educate myself mm-hmm. and continue to stay in the gym continue to stay healthy and you know and just try to focus on me right now uh, you know I'm not I, I always say you have to I tell a lot of veterans this you have to be somewhat selfish a mm. lot of veterans and and just military in general are always selfless people they're yeah. always thinking about others well when you get out of the military you got to think about yourself a little bit mm-hmm. if you don't you're you're always like I I, I love to twist the death and I mean obviously oh. he helped save my life but twist one thing he never did do that I always got on to him about. He always cared about others. He never thought about himself. Mm. He always, it was other people, other people, other people. So after he died, uh, I, I told myself, you know what? I, I'm going to start being a little bit selfish. And, you know, if I, if I want to go do something, I'm going to go do something. And, uh, you know, right now it's just about, you know, um, doing what I want to do, having fun and uh, being a little bit selfish in a way, just the, but right now it's just reading and, uh, you know, going to the gym. But, you know, after that, I I don't know. I know I want to write a book one day, but I always ask is, is now the right time or is there some other big chapter? You know, if I write a biography or something, why write it now if something else big could happen? Because I'm, I'm only, I'm only 28. I'm not not in the 30s yet. Now, I I don't I don't know what could happen. I just I go with the flow. Um, So we'll we'll see where where life takes things. But other than that, yeah, just in the meantime, I'm just going to, you know, this book is the big thing. So I'm kind of glad I don't have a a job right now. So I was able to go (laughs) through that and then, you know, and process it because I'll be God honest, it was. It was not an easy read for me. There was probably three times I, I did put the book down and, you know, and I would choke up a little bit mm-hmm. and I would come back to it later. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so yeah, that, uh, I'll, I'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you will. Did Twist kind of taught you to be selfish in a way and, and focus on me time, like mm-hmm. self-care? Yeah, no, well, Twist... 
uh, you know, dying taught me that. I, I wouldn't say he taught me that while he was alive. Every time, mm-hmm. every time we talked, it was always he was always so happy and so giddy, and would just ask about me, like, "Hey, what are you up to? You know, what are you doing in college and all this stuff." And he would never ask anything about, uh, you know, never would just tell me about his life, like what's going on right off the bat. I would usually, you know, I'd say like twist, stop asking about me, like what, how's, you know, the state trooper job going? Mm. And then, then he would finally, you know, uh, start talking about it a bunch. But yeah, he, he just, uh, he, he was never, he was always worried about his guys. He was always worried about others. And I think that, you know, that affected him mentally a mm. lot. And I, you know, and then it got to the breaking point to where it did. Um, so fortunately it ended the way it did. But mm. like I said, I, I try not to let anybody die in vain. And I've learned something um, from each person as they pass. You can't, if, if you don't learn something, then you, you don't progress in life. Yeah. He, he, he taught us a lot about service although I did not know him um, your your peers kind of learned that you know life is should not be taken for granted right it, it should be uh, for purpose but sometimes these invisible wounds of war can take its toll mm-hmm. yeah then even on those who, because uh, you can ask just about every single person in the platoon, and they'll all say uh, about the same thing. If you ask them the one person who you don't think would commit suicide was, everybody would have said Twist. Hmm. Um, because Twist was always happy. You know, he, he, had a, he had a wife, he had kids, he had the house, he had the job. Like, uh, they're everything seemed perfect and nobody mm. questioned him matter of fact like at that time um that he ended up doing what he did i was checking on guys uh i was checking on multiple guys in the platoon that i was uh very worried about um you know because of past suicide attempts and i was worried that they were about to go down that path so mm-hmm. i was talking to them constantly and then out of left field it wasn't you know, it, it wasn't the guys I was talking to that were about to do it. It was twist the whole time. Mm-hmm. And I that really confused everybody. I, wow. I think, you know, probably everybody in the platoon when they first heard that they were confused. Because I, I know, you know, just like every single death that has happened in the platoon, it's at an odd hour and you get a phone call from one of the guys. And, you know, by the time it was twist that was dead we were all so used to it. And I remember looking down in my phone at, uh, you know, it was, uh, I believe like 5 a.m. on uh, Wednesday morning. And, uh, yeah, and I got a call. And to say uh, he had killed himself. And so that was, uh, and I knew, I knew somebody was dead. We always, you know, started to learn after a while. You get, you get a phone call from one of the guys in the platoon at an odd hour. Somebody's dead. The question mm-hmm. is who? And wow. and then when they said twist, uh, I said no. Like there's there's no way. I, mm. I just that's what I was thinking in my head, but my mouth nothing came out, mm. and I was just speechless. I hung up the phone and just started crying, and mm. uh, didn't really didn't really like understand what had just happened. I didn't think twist was the one to do that, um, and. Uh, yeah, just because of the happy life, but everything's not as perfect as it, it may seem. So, um, so yeah, I just, uh, 
that's the way that's the way it's been in the platoon but it's like uh, i guess just we used to always call ourselves cursed and then i think that's why that washington post article when it came out mm-hmm. they ended up calling us the cursed platoon because we used to always make a joke you know we must be cursed because you know between war crimes to people dying back to back stateside there's some something's cursed or maybe maybe the war crimes was the curse i don't know um but but yeah that's just uh it's the way it is so now just try to try our best to talk to one another yeah. you know and uh even the ones who are doing good i think twist taught us that lesson uh never know you never know and and what 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 is it that you've learned from all of this tragedy and pain and sadness and you've given yourself permission to cry and grieve and and be in that stage where you're you're you know going through emotions a roller coaster of emotions mm-hmm. what what can you make sense of it what did you find where's the beauty of of this senseless sorrow and how can you even find that how do you oh. make that uh, I hate to say there's any beauty in any mm-hmm. of it um, because I, you know, you learn lessons along the way, yeah. like I said, but it just, uh, it, it still hurt every time, you know, yeah. and every, every single guy that died, you, you spend hours crying and then you go to a funeral to cry a bunch more and then you go home and you become a little number, mm-hmm. um, you know, and all the way up to the point where when, when twist died, I didn't, you know, I didn't, act the same as I did on some of the others. Uh, it just, uh, I don't, like I said, I don't know if there's any, you know, beauty in it. I, you know, you can put on a smile, but at the end of the day, they're still dead. They're still uh, dead. Mm. But, you know, you can, like I always say, I just try to take what they have taught me and, you know, and bring that success forward because that that's what I had to, like I, I told Bonds the other day, you know, he, he, he said something about like, why do you feel you have to prove something? Because I, I always, ever since I got injured, I felt like I had to prove something. Mm. And that goes back to that day, June 6th, mm. uh, in 2012, just because, you know, the two, you know, everybody that was involved in saving my life, I always felt like if I don't do something, then I'm being, you know, I'm showing the utmost dis- disrespect to all of them because they put their life on the line to save me. Because Twist so just, pulled you out, right? It, that yes, that was it, a story. It, it, yeah, exactly. Um, mm. You know, so even though Twist was never the type to, you know, tell me you better do a good job uh, because I saved your life not once mm. ever when knowing him did he ever say anything like that. But you know what? Maybe I didn't do it for him at the end of the day. Maybe I had to do it for me, but I just felt I had to, you know, prove myself, had to prove that a life saved was worth it. Mm. Um, So, you know, maybe that is the beauty in all of it is that, you know, they've given me a form of motivation because now every time, you know, uh, one of the last big uh, moments that I cried in joy was graduating college um you know this past year last uh what last may and uh you know and when i was sitting there crying uh you know happy tears and in my house by myself it was just because i was i was you know first off 
Um, I was, you know, so happy that I'm one of the only one on my dad's side of the family to even have, you know, undergrad. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was those tears, but most of all, there, there were the tears of like, I felt like I, you know, I brought them along with me and I was able to kind of go back and say like, look, Haynes, we did it together. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't do it on my own. So, um, because of what they taught me. So then each success it's kind of you pull them, you pull them back out, even though you think about them every day. Yeah. Then when that when you hit those big successful moments, you pull them back out. But this time, not the, you know, thinking some uh, sorrowful way. It's more so to like, hey, look, guys, uh, we did it. We did it together. Wow, that is incredible, Mr. Wally. Those are the wins that uh, the winning little things that brought you to where you are now. It was because of your first platoon. Mm-hmm. everything those guys i appreciate you so much um of course for your thank you for time having me and and teaching us about your experiences and sharing those experiences and this will help learn of uh, uh lessons learned for our therapist our nurse practitioners that uh, are going into this field and hearing your story and learning about your your peers and and i I appreciate you. Thank you so oh. much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm sure we'll be talking soon. Yes. Have a good one. Yes, sir. You take it easy. Okay, bye. Bye. This Psych Nurse Practitioner podcast does not constitute a medical advice. This podcast is not intended to replace a professional psychiatric assessment. The ideas expressed in this podcast do not reflect the position of the speakers, authors, affiliated medical and nurse practitioner organizations. Thank you. Ana Sanchez is a dual certified family and psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. She currently practices as a psych nurse practitioner in the local emergency room. She has experiences in both inpatient and outpatient psychiatric setting. She has consulted in the past as a psych nurse practitioner as well. She has teaching experience as an adjunct clinical faculty instructor in both med surge and psychiatry. She currently serves as a medical officer in the U.S. Air Force Reserves. She is passionate in the care of those with mental health conditions. She is also the founder and executive director for Hope Center for Veterans, which is a nonprofit organization that increases positive outcomes for veterans. You're listening to the Psych Nurse Practitioner Podcast. This is Ana Sanchez, your host. I share with you evidence-based research on mental health. I dispense empathy, hope, and share with you a deeper understanding of what mental illness is. Together, we can raise awareness, improve attitudes, and remove the barriers to mental health. Thank you. Thank you.